Hello, and welcome to another edition of Barbarians at the Gate. This is Jeremiah Jenny, broadcasting high above the Dongcheng district of Beijing. With me, in spirit, digitally, and in all ways technological, David Moser. David, where in the world, I feel like I have to ask this question before every episode, where in the world is David? <laughs> uh, I'm still in Bangkok, way up on the 10th floor here, looking at this uh, amazing metropolis. Uh, Jeremiah, I've been here long enough that I am taking taxis and meeting people and doing things, and I, I suddenly have a, a, an appreciation or sympathy for the people who, the expats who live in Beijing without any Chinese whatsoever. It's the first time, it's very, very frustrating to not be able to explain things to a taxi cab driver or just to solve some little problem. So I suddenly, I have much greater sympathy for expats who, who come with no Chinese or very little Chinese. Also, Jeremiah, we, uh, I hung out with our friend Jeff Wasserstrom for a few days when he was here, giving some uh, talks. Very interesting, as usual. He was talking about uh, protests in Thailand and Hong Kong and elsewhere and the commonalities between them. And I actually learned that a lot of the Hong Kong dissidents and the Thai dissidents actually are aware of each other, sometimes are in contact with each other, and, and sort of... Uh, share notes and, and uh, uh, wisdom or advice. So that was all pretty interesting. And Jeff says hi, by the way. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I've long been a huge fan of Jess Wasserstrom as someone who's a historian, but also really works to help bridge that gap between academia and public discourse. I mean, he really is kind yeah. of one of the, yeah. the real mentors in terms of people who want to be kind of a public historian who try to really make the research you know, accessible and sing and relevant for uh, for everybody, and uh, so he's he's been a, a real uh, inspiration for me. And and also he was very he was kind enough to be on my dissertation committee as well. So I owe a lot to uh, Professor Wasserstrom. Glad he got a chance to hang out with him in Bangkok. You know the uh, the idea of being an expat in a place that's hard to navigate. You know, where you and I and a lot of us were on these uh, different WeChat groups. And, you know, these WeChat groups for expats and every once in a while you get kind of the, you know, person who just arrived and they're like, uh, so uh, like, how can I, what is this WeChat thing? And, and usually the first thing that happens is like 19 people put different emojis or memes or GIFs of all basically rolling their eyes. Like, you know, come on, dude, like scroll up, use the search the chat history, that kind of thing. But you're right. I mean. You know, you're in a new environment, and, and I think for a lot of us who have lived, even those of us who have lived abroad, but lived abroad in a particular location for a long time, we take for granted the ability to kind of navigate that location for, you know, be able to, you know, you said, talk to the taxi driver or, you know, find somebody who wants to adopt a cat or, for <laughs> example, you know, just getting around. So I think, I think there yeah. has always been an, an important need for resources to to help people find their way in a in a city and and frankly a city like Beijing or Bangkok that can be a little bit more challenging than just moving to say London you know for example right. and smooth segue that was with us today in fact in the studio is Mike Wester he is the what would you call it president chairman el presidente of true run media the guy who does all the other jobs that no one else feels like doing i guess yes the <laughs> true run media for those of you who don't know is the company that publishes among other things uh the beijinger jing kids and a number of other publications over the years 
Mike has been with us in Beijing since 2000 and has, of course, as many of you who live in Beijing or have been in Beijing know, has been a really important part both uh, personally and also with his publications in trying to keep the, you know, build a community, an expatriate community here, helping people to access, you know, what it, you know, Beijing and all of its, uh, you know, charms and challenges. And so, Mike, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank, thank you for having me. So uh, I thought we could begin and maybe just give us a little sense before, you know, why did you end up not just in Asia and China, but why did you go into, say, publishing and uh, creating, you know, what has become, even in the, the this sort of age of TikTok and WeChat and all of that, still an almost uh, a source that is absolutely you know necessary for those of us who live here? Well, I mean, my life story sounds like I planned it all along, but it's been a series of weird accidents. But I studied um, Chinese in college, not because I had a real interest in China, but because I had to get a language requirement out of the way. And I was looking for something that was as far away from Latin and French as I possibly could imagine, because I had done miserably in both of those subjects. And I also, uh, in, in high school, I was part of a high school newspaper that was taken very seriously by its sort of faculty advisor. And so I got the bug, I kind of got the news bug when I was uh, a teenager. So uh, throughout college, I was working at the college I attended's daily newspaper and studying Chinese frantically and found that I really enjoyed studying Chinese, not necessarily, again, because I had uh, an affection for the culture or, in fact, knew anything about it. I just felt like it was uh, easier somehow for, for me than French or Latin. And uh, I think I was always I was always intrigued by the language because it always seemed a little bit like a secret code. Anyway, long story short is I ended up moving to Taiwan after university to really hone my language skills. And uh, lo and behold, shortly after I arrived, I was offered a job in one of the daily newspapers there. And they had two daily newspapers there that were kind of like a China daily. Uh, not much to to uh, write home about, but... Uh, but and, and in fact, most of them at the time were just kind of retreads of AP News and AFP. I remember picking up this, the daily newspaper in Taiwan when I first arrived there and reading about the stock market in London or something like this and, and, and political goings on in the Middle East, but nothing about Taiwan. And at that time, there were a lot of expats and I, you would meet two types of expats. The students, this was in Taipei. You would meet the students who were studying Chinese, and they absolutely loved the place. It was so fun. It was like every night you were going to see a cool live band or going out to a great restaurant or going to a cool temple or dragon boating or whatever. It was just this really cool mix of contemporary and traditional culture. And then you would meet the grizzled you know, expat posting expats who didn't speak Chinese, and they would bitch about how shitty life was there and how Taiwan had no culture and it would just couldn't wait to leave. And I was freaking out about it. I was like, why are these people not seeing what I'm seeing? Because I, am, I have a kind of a foot in both these communities, the students who love the place, the expat students, um, and then the, the sort of mid-career professionals, let's call it, who would just be bitter and angry and... and uh, and miserable about about uh, and disrespectful, I think, about Chinese culture and about Taiwan as a place to live. So, ultimately, I realized actually it had a lot to do with the media. This is, of course, pre-internet and pre-even cell phones or anything like this. So, if you were an expat there and you didn't speak Chinese, you had no access to the culture. You would never find out even about where to go out to eat. It would be kind of like 
it's no wonder they were cranky and miserable. So I approached my boss at the time and asked him if he wanted to create an entertainment guide. Nothing earth shattering, nothing, you know, this isn't rocket science. Let's just tell people where, where to go out to eat in this city. I mean, wouldn't that be a service? And my boss at the time gave me about two minutes of consideration and said no. And so that day I called up the competition and I made the same offer. I said, look, let me write an entertainment guide for you because it's going to be a hit. I just know it is. There's this huge gap in the market. So she hired me within a month. I had was working at the, the other newspaper, created an entertainment section, which again, not rocket science, where to go out to eat, where to go see a movie, what cool live bands are around, how to appreciate what's going on around you. And slowly but surely over time, I realized all these cranky expats, you know, mid-career expats who didn't speak a word of Chinese were saying, hey, Taiwan's pretty cool. I love Taipei. Hey, this is a great place to live. And I felt like, wow, in my own small way, I had a real big influence on people's attitudes and people's lives. So this was this was Taiwan of what era? This is the late 1990s or, or um, early 1990s. I was there from 91 to 96. So okay. there, were, of, there were, of course, uh, a lot of other factors that resulted in a more interesting community for them at that time. But well, I mean, I think there might have been. An, I was going to ask you about the difference between the Taiwan and uh, mainland, you know, expat scene. But I, I think it's interesting that you were there at that time because I sort of I started out uh, in the, in the I think it was 85. Went to Taiwan for a half year and went back again a few times. So I had a feeling of what it was like then. And of course, my Chinese wasn't good very, very back then. I could, but, but I had a lot of friends and, and uh, ready-made friends of my sister, in fact. So I, I, I experienced it in a very different way. But China was very different for expats, mainland China then, because there wasn't that much nightlife there weren't nothing very many going on, and there was, and, and the, the the foreign community was kind of a cloistered, uh, you know, sm a much smaller uh, community, and the the grizzled expats were sort of long timers, and they didn't really care about interacting with foreigners that much. So what's what is? Have you been back to Taiwan since? I, d I did make one trip back uh, a few uh, a few years ago, and really enjoyed visiting there again. Uh, after so many years, but it seemed like a different place to me. It seemed the economy was much visibly, um, let's say, calmer than it was in the early 90s. But anyways, I, it, I mean, the bottom line was what I, what, what I found to be my, I guess you could call it my life's calling since then, was like, how could I be influencing an expatriate community in a positive way because it wasn't just about the you know the the prospect of oh yeah let's go party but actually you know every every expat becomes an usually moves on and becomes an ambassador of their former former residence former city so like people who would leave taiwan if they enjoyed their life there they would go back and say hey taiwan's a cool place if they were miserable they'd go and say taiwan's a piece of shit and so the same thing when I came to Beijing, I, you know, I, I came here in 2000. And of course, there was already stuff, already people doing stuff uh, similar to what I ended up doing. And there was also the internet and cell phones and things. So it wasn't quite as isolating at that point in time. But I just thought, you know, I hate it when an expat comes in and, and, and complains about something. And most of it, it's a, it's, is the result of a misunderstanding. You know what I mean? Some people, a lot of times, because a lot of expats, it particularly maybe not so much anymore in Beijing, but back then there was a lot of expats who would come over as, you know, hired guns to run factories and this sort of things. And they didn't have any Chinese skills because their their expertise was in their 
their profession, not in their language. So they would go around and whine and, and bitch and moan, and, and certainly they did great things too, but I just got very resentful of the fact that they would make comments that I felt were inappropriate and in, uninformed just because they really, I mean, no fault of their own. They ended up in, Taiwan, in China, you know, mid-career without a word of Chinese. In trying to run a magazine like this, what have been some of the, it's great to having an idea to kind of bring this community together, but it's also a challenge too, because it's a very, it is a diverse community. I don't know as much about Taiwan in that sense. I've been to Taipei a few times. Every time I go, I feel like I'm cheating on Beijing. You know, wow, this is really nice, but I, I can't stay. For, for running a magazine like yours in China, there are, of course, parameters to doing this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You, you, there's, but, you know, funny, strangely enough, it was kind of the same in Taiwan back then, too, because Taiwan wasn't exactly, a, you know, bastion of free press in the early 90s. So it was, it was quite it was you had to be sensitive. Right. And in reality, you know, the funny thing is, is it looking back at doing this for over 20 years, there are far more commercial limitations than there are political. In other words, I'm much more fearful of like pissing off the wrong restaurant by saying their, you know, steak sucks than pissing off some, some, you know, some part of officialdom by saying something that might offend them. Personally, my, you know, my strategy, look, we're, uh, we're, there's a, there's a Chinese word for it. I forgot what it was called. It's like, Tongsu or something. It's like we're very, we're a very crass commercial organization. We're not really here to change people's, change the world or change the political system. We're here for people. Look, we're you're here. We want you to enjoy your life. We want you to understand as much as possible of what's going on around you. You know, and that's everything from where to go have your meal tonight, right to you know where to go hiking over the weekend, or why is there traffic stopped on the third ring road from 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. tonight. This this need to keep the community informed, though, you know, about things like the traffic or why we have to work on a Saturday during the public holiday calendar. This took on a, a kind of different feel when COVID started in, mm. back in 2020. Yeah. And I, I have to say, I mean, I think a lot of people in the community would back me up in this. I think one of the things that you, you were really instrumental in doing was setting up avenues of communication, either on the, on the website for the Beijinger, Mm-hmm. or on WeChat, I think you created these groups called Safe and Sane, and they yeah. became very popular. And the idea was, you know, in a in, in, in a complicated information environment, let's just say, let's just say yeah. uh, it was really useful to have. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit what was the inspiration behind that, and, you know, how did you keep that going? Because I think for a lot of people living here in Beijing, we came to rely on those groups and on the Beijingers website to kind of cut through a lot of the noise and try to figure out like what's really happening. Yeah, well, I think it was a consequence of having lived through SARS in Beijing in the 2003. And again, you know, I, I'm not a saint. I was doing it str- strictly for self-preservation because I knew from my experience in SARS that this is likely to ruin my business if everyone leaves because we're dependent on expats. Not to say that I would, I'm, I'm sugarcoating the reality of the situation. But what, what had happened during SARS was that there was no information, period, in Chinese or in English. It was drips and drabs. And, and for those of you who wanted to go back and look at the historical rec- record, there was actual denial coming from official sources that it was even happening. You know, in the official media, you'd be saying, you'd be reading, nothing's happening. 
and then you see in Newsweek that the plague has broken out in Beijing and you're like, which is real? I don't know, you know? Uh, and then you would also, but then people would say, calm down, nothing's happening. And then your friend would get trapped in their dorm and couldn't leave with the delivery guy who just happened to walk in before they locked the door. And they were not heard of for a month because no one had, I mean, only very few people had cell phones at that point in time. Or, you know, and even email addresses weren't necessarily ubiquitous in connections, your internet connections. So at that time, and things got better during SARS. Uh, I think there was a visit from either the World Health Organization or the UN or some combination of those. Well, I remember when uh, Wang Shishan took over from the previous mayor, when they, they cleaned up, one of the first things he did was, he, uh, maybe I'm misremembering this, but he had a kind of press conference on TV yep. where he was actually fielding live questions from reporters. And I, I remember being just shocked at like, wow, this is, I mean, someone's taking this seriously, but also who is this guy Wang Qishan that they would trust him to be, you know, in a position to answer questions live. And of course we now know that he was a pretty trusted member of the party and still is. Yeah, so so they they uh, eventually during SARS there was like a genuine attempt to say like the best way to handle this is with clear public information. So when COVID came around, I I had no idea it was ever going to be as big as it was. I was kind of expecting another SARS, let's call it a blip. Although I don't want to underestimate the damage that SARS did. Um, there was more people who lost their lives in Beijing from SARS during SARS than 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 COVID. So for Beijing, the city itself, SARS was actually worse. I just kind of knew right away that, that the first thing that was going to happen is rumors were going to fly, because this is exactly what happened during SARS. And I thought, and it's gonna, they're going to fly in the expat community because there's no one really making the effort to communicate in English. I mean, obviously, as a very teensy portion, what is it, 0.02% of the population, we're not exactly on you know, the front and center of anyone's agenda. When the city's in a crisis and trying to communicate, probably the last thing they're thinking about is like, oh, let's make sure those you know, 20,000 expats also know this, right? Because they got 20 million people to worry about. So I said to myself, look, I'm so, I'm so tired of all the you know, immediately bullshit started coming out. Rumors started coming out. Oh, there's bodies piled up behind there. They're not telling us the truth, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, look, I got to do something. I got to do whatever little I can do to try to alleviate this situation. I'm going to try to do. And and my business dried up, of course, as well. So I had a lot of extra time on my hand because <laughs> everyone was closed and, you know, and there was, wasn't much to do. So I was simply just taking, and I wasn't speculate. I wasn't, I'm not a, intrepid journalist all i was doing was looking at the day i was watching the daily press conferences and looking at the chinese headlines and i was saying this is what is said in the chinese media i am not vouching for its veracity but i'm just telling you what other people are being told and i think it's my obligation to let people who don't read chinese or speak chinese know about as much as i possibly could so i did i did as much as i could uh it wasn't a whole lot but i think it was enough to tell people to at least refute some of the more ridiculous rumors that were going on in the in the 90s when these magazines began to come out I had the feeling that in, in some sense the English language uh, internet and the English language press was somewhat overlooked or not quite scrutinized by the the, uh, the, the official censorship control because it was in English has that changed over the years and do you have a, an organization that monitors what you write and have you ever had any uh, objections or any pushback? Uh, well, let me tell you this. What's my interesting conclusion after 20 years is it's, and, and this is a controversial take is uh, perhaps, is that it's not really about politics. It's about business. 
control, a lot of um, publication control is really about, about, about controlling it as a business. The reason I say that is because back when the print industry was really huge, wow, did that print industry get regulated? But guess what? Once that thing started not making money, no one cared about it anymore, right? So it's like, you know, no one cares to regulate it because, oh, it's a dying industry, right? So let's go regulate something else that's like like, like education or, or video games or the internet because that's where the money is. Uh, of course, that's also where the action is. But to answer your question, you know, if, um, in order for us to publish, we have to have a, and this is this is kind of a long and involved story, but every publishing let, let's just let's it, it it sort of works this way with for the internet as well. But let's just to simplify this discussion, let's imagine we're in an age of just print. Okay, the way print is controlled is everyone has to have an ISBN number, which is the standard book code number. You know the barcode you'll see on every either magazine or book. Only those codes are only given to state-owned enterprises. They're like matter. They are never created nor destroyed. These these things were issued one time, and were and everyone has one. So, the 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 the, the Hubei Farmers Cooperative has got one to publish the Hubei Co- Farmers Cooperative Monthly, and the Beijing you know Municipal Bureau of Watermelons has their license for to publish their Watermelon Monthly. They're controlled, right? So that way, no one can. That, that way, basically, it's really easy because if someone says something bad. Oh, let's check that code and see who's responsible for it. Oh, it's Fred at the Watermelon Ministry. Well, he's going to have to pay for that, you know, saying that horrible stuff uh, or whatever it is that we're offended by. So it's a really strict, to-a-man system of control. In other words, someone's name is associated with that ISBN number. And if something gets published in there that no one, someone doesn't like— that person's going to be easily found and easily dera- their career easily derailed. Okay, so you know when in order for us to publish as a commercial enterprise, and this is also this would go right through to Vogue magazine and any other title you could ever think of, is they will simply be working in either as a contractual relationship or a joint venture with a state-owned enterprise, and thus uh, the state-owned enterprise usually. Okay, so let's use the example of the what did I say? The Beijing Bureau of Watermelons. The Beijing Bureau of Watermelons, Watermelon Monthly, has not been attracting advertising for years, so they're losing money left over right. Um, and there's really not much to talk about in the Watermelon Monthly. So what they do is they say, hey, Big Boobs Monthly Magazine, would you like to cooperate with us? And you publish magazines full of you know bus- buxom women, sell a lot of advertising with it, and you just give us some money, and we'll let you we essentially rent the license to you. And everybody wins because the commercial enterprise publishes something that's wonderfully salacious or sexy or, you know, fashion or whatever is the hot thing, the the boring old state-owned enterprise can make money off of this publishing license that they're basically no longer using. And the only trade-off is that because Mr. Watermelon has to pay the price if something is crossing the line, that means Mr. Watermelon is going to check what you publish really, really carefully because he doesn't want to get in trouble. So we've had you know, Mr. Watermelons, I guess, for a lack of a better term, looking at our publishing for a long time. But it's, you know, it's kind of like a trust relationship. At the very beginning, it was like every single word, every single photograph was would be combed over and we would be making adjustments and corrections like every time we publish, you know, at that time we were publishing like 100 pages, 100 page issues. And there would be times where there was something wrong with every single page. So we'd have to redo 100 pages because, you know, this sentence doesn't sound, we don't like the sound of that, blah, blah, blah. Okay, but over time, I think, you know, we're not, again, rabble rousers. We don't touch political issues. The most, we, we talk about, you know, lifestyle, entertainment, 
we don't even really go gossip much, you know? It's basically positive. We like to think of ourselves as a positive influence. So over time, we're increasingly trusted that we're not going to be coming out with the big expose trying to take down the central government. We don't do that stuff. So they don't need to look at us every day because when was the last time we did anything that offended anybody aside from, say, this taco place sucks and this place is great, you know? Uh, that's like our biggest controversy if we, like, you know, put our— Put a, say someplace is great and someone is saying, no, it's not great. It sucks. Does the same thing apply for events? Because I know one of the other things that, that your company has done in the last few years, and it's been a, it's, is we, you, you've sponsored the Burger Festival, the Pizza Festival, the Chili Pepper Festival, Lamy and Lollapalooza, Tofu Coachella. I mean, I'm making up some right, of these, right. but not all of them. It's a, it's a lot of really big events that you put on, yeah. the companies put on, and they've been very, very successful, very popular. Does the same thing apply? It's obviously a different system, but does the same thing apply in terms of just somebody who's responsible for making sure that whatever your event is, no one dies from the chili pepper contest? Exactly, yeah. Basically, you're talking about, you know, it's like with any commercial enterprise, or whatever happens on your turf is responsible, is the responsibility of either the um, local paichusoa, which is like the local, whatever, police office or security office. I don't know what the English term for that is. Or, or the venue, you know, the venue has a management um, and they don't want to get in trouble. And ironically, the most trouble we have with uh, Beijing, with events in Beijing is noise complaints because essentially we're doing, there's no, there's not many open fields with no neighbors around it in the middle of a city like Beijing. So wherever you're doing something you're, and you gather a thousand, five thousand, ten thousand people, there's going to be noise. And, uh, all it takes is one person to call up and say, hey, I'm, you know, my afternoon nap is being disturbed. And Beijing has a pretty sophisticated public service hotline. It's all very, in fact, if you go visit their office down in Fengtai, I was taken there once. It's like the bat cave because like, I mean, they've got this wall sized thing that every phone, every, literally every call is monitored and ranked and put in, you know, what district and which, who, you know, little beep, 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 you know, and all this kind of crazy stuff. So anytime any civilian complaint is lodged, they have to do something about it because it's all recorded. So in the end, one guy called one Uncle Fred gets disturbed in his nap and calls the police and the police have to come to the event and say, tone it down because the system is there's a there's a system, right? You have to I have to respond to the complaint. I have to show evidence that I responded to the complaint. It's really hard to do anything in the city that doesn't disturb someone. You would think it's not a case. It's you, you'd think it wouldn't be a problem because there's so much street noise and honking and everything else going on in a typical big city. But it is, in fact, a, a big deal. One of the things that has been very much talked about. And David and I have talked about this ourselves a couple of times, but in the last year, certainly since the end of COVID, one of the recurring stories that you hear coming out of China is about this kind of expat exodus. Mm. It's, it in many ways started before COVID because of air pollution and other issues, mm. accelerated during COVID, and then there was this feeling that, okay, now that COVID's over, people will start to come back, but whoops, that's not happening as robustly as I think many people, especially in the official, officially in the authorities here, kind of thought was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so, one of the challenges I think is is a lot of the the reporting on this tends to focus usually the article usually talks about one or two reasons when in fact I think it's like kind of a basket of reasons why this is all. I think people are leaving for different reasons. 
Oh yeah, and they're not coming back for different reasons. And it, and I think one of the challenges in, in in talking about this issue is it gets kind of lumped in like people are leaving because it's repressive, or people are leaving because it's uh, unsafe, or, and you know, I'm not saying those things are not true. It has it is a lot more repressive and a lot less safe, at least in my opinion, than it was 10 years ago or 15 years ago. But that's a lot of people are also leaving for their own reasons as well. And I'm just, I want to get your take because not only do you work a lot with the expatriate community you also um you know you're somebody that people in authority here often go to and ask questions like this like mm. hey why is no why is no one coming to our party well it's yeah i, I agree that it's i agree that it's uh, a lot of different reasons but i have to say it really boils down to money right the the fact is that when there's money it does it's not just about it's not a foreign thing you know it's like whoever if a place is booming people come when it's not booming, they don't want to come anymore. And the thing about expats is, you know, I remember the first thing that anyone ever said to me when I came here in 1999. And this was a person I was doing an informational interview with. And literally the first words out of her, cell, her mouth when I said I'm looking for a job is they said, the age of the expat is over. Expats are no longer getting expat packages. You will never find a job here. Okay, that was 25 years ago. And at the time, if it, it's a matter of perspective, because at that time, if you were an expat willing to take what was definitely a hardship post at that time, you were probably getting God knows how much more than your hometown salary with a free apartment and a driver and an IE and a cook and all your kids' education paid for and a, you know whatever, I don't know, foot massages every night. You are getting treated like a king. And guess what? Once you're treated like a king, you don't want to have the life of a peasant again or even a prince. You've already been the king. So anything less than knighthood or king kingdom being the king, it sucks. So expats got used to these big fat packages. And yes, those packages were disappearing. So anyone who was used to those packages left. If there was a better opportunity, they left, period. That's life. You know, the other thing we have to think about is like, the term expatriate is kind of wrong. An expatriate is someone who permanently relocates somewhere. In, the, in my mind, no one does that. See, I thought it was the bad. I thought it was the, I've seen these. I've seen these arguments online. Yeah. Like, and and David, you're the linguist here, so help us out. Why do we call white people who go to other countries expats, and we call people who are not white who go to Western countries immigrants? And I always thought it was. And I don't know. Maybe I'm looking at this definition wrong. I always thought the idea of an expat was someone who actually went someplace but didn't plan to stay there forever. Oh, maybe it's true. If you if you if you uh, if you put it up against the term immigrant, right? Right. Immigrant does me imply more permanence. Yeah, because I, I think that was always a big thing. I mean, I, I like most of the people I know who I think of as expats, and I'm certainly one of them. I mean, more so now than before. But like, people ask me like, "Do you plan on staying in China for the rest of your life?" And I'm like. No, I mean, I mean, I, you know, I, I like China a lot, but I, I don't plan on like, you know, retiring here, or dying here. And I don't know that there are people in our, the expat community who, or the, I should say, the foreign community in Beijing who do plan on staying here forever. Yeah, that's I think I kind of agree with with you, Jeremiah. I think that there's a default that the expat is somebody who's here, but they're, 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 they have an insular kind of life and they're going to go back to their to their home country uh, eventually. The reason I think that is because sometimes I have been told or people have said to me, what, you've been here 35 years? Wow, you've gone native. And they use the word gone native. Wonderful colonial is, uh, relic. 
Yeah, which is right. A colonial. This this is. Uh, I don't know, Albert Schweitzer or somebody like that who just loved the jungle and ended up staying there the rest of his life, right? That's what going native means, right? So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I've also, there's a lot of people in between, uh, as you said, Jeremiah, I think it's complicated and see what Mike thinks about this, but there were a lot of people who had up until COVID and maybe some other things, uh, I had planned to go native and stay here the rest of my life, but now I'm revising my plan. And I think that's a new kind of uh, that that component is is uh, you know dying out quick, pretty quickly with the recent events. I think so. It's a little bit complicated. Uh, there are long timers and there are foreverers, and then there are people who are just come for a while and they leave. So, da- David, you said you were here thirty five years in Beijing. Uh, nineteen eighty six. How many years is that from now? I don't know. It's well, thir- Almost forty years, thirty six, yeah. seven or eight years. So, yeah. so from from your perspective, right? Like, here's what's I think you you would say you would see this even far more pronounced than my experience is if like if you're standing in the middle of Beijing and people are saying, "God, all the foreigners are left," and you think about what it was like in 1986, you're like, "No, <laughs> no, there are so many more foreigners here." I'd like to just mention something about you and me, Mike, because this is a phenomenon I found to be quite interesting. Even people like us, who I've been in Beijing a long, long time, and I always think I've probably met any foreigner who's been here this long, and I, if I haven't, it would, it's a miracle. I still keep meeting foreigners who have been here as long as I have, and we never met, and I never heard of them. Yeah, same and here. And that's amazing. That, that's amazing. It, it means the space is, is bigger than we think, and, and, and the, the, the different niches and the, the, you know, the different uh, uh, sort of uh, circles of, of uh of interaction and, and familiarity are very much more complicated than we think. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I mean, uh, but yeah, but still, still of the ones that I do know, uh, a lot of them have decided to leave or give up, uh, at least temporarily. A lot of people um, in Shanghai, Beijing, I know have, when, when the lockdowns began, um, someone I know in Shanghai who was a uh, brilliant uh, simultaneous translator, interpreter, was very committed to China for a very long time. He and his whole family just moved out to to, to Canada, and which is uh, that's shocking. And I, I don't think you would have seen that from these people 10, 15, 20 years ago. It's, this is a new thing that we're facing, I think. Tempered by time, I think what um, if you look at the t- period between, like, say, for me, from my perspective, 20, probably from 86 right through to uh, 2000. Or maybe 2010, with a, maybe a little blip right around 1989, uh, the expat community was always growing. But then, some yes. points at 2010, it started contracting. Okay, and yeah. part of it was, I mean, there's a ton of different reasons. But I mean, and COVID certainly accelerated that. Uh, it's accelerated it by a, a factor of 10. But you know, but prior to COVID, every spring there would be the wave of, oh, everyone's leaving. And I was yeah, like, right. you know, you got to think of col- you got to think of Beijing like a college town. Essentially, yeah, everyone's leaving. <laughs> People leave their careers. Right. They get promoted. They get married. They want to go have kids. They want to go live in Bali. They want to go home and, and live with their family again or near their family again. It's natural. I think if you probably, I mean, I have a friend who I grew up with. I grew up in the suburbs of Boston, and he's my age, 50, 56, and he lived in Boston hometown for 55 years. And guess what? Last year, they up and moved to Maine. They're like, we're done with this place. And huh. so would you say like, Oh my God! The ex, you know, the the the, what do you call them? The natives are leaving Boston. Yeah, well, they are kind of because you know 
people are mobile. I also mm-hmm. think, too, I've, I've long kind of, I had no scientific basis for this whatsoever, but I've often said that the general life expectancy of an expat in Beijing is about five years. I feel like the generations are about five years. I, yeah. I think about the people I, and when I, and I used to have friends, I, I, I think the, the cycle of friends would be like every five years and I'd kind of have to find a new crew, you know, and uh, I think you're right. There's a certain, yeah, you know, the college analogy is a good one because it is like after, you know, every four or five years, the people you came in with, if it, after five years, they're probably going to go. And then mm-hmm. that happens. I think there is a feeling yeah. that people who are to stay behind, like, oh my God, everybody's yeah. leaving because their cohort is leaving. Right. And yeah. what happens Can is I- too, you also age out of a cohort where if you come in and you're 25 and now you're in your 30s, all the people who came in with, yeah, they're leaving and you don't hang out with the 25 year olds right. who are coming in. <laughs> and so you don't necessarily, we, I, I, I totally agree. This, this is not scientific. This is just purely like, you know, perception, but there is a feeling like, okay, your friends leave, but you don't, see the people coming in to replace them. And I, I, the other part of it too, which I, I want to be just, this is kind of like the, the caveat. I, I want to disclaimer because someone's going to put this on Twitter. Yes, we are kind of talking rather specifically about expats from Western countries, because if you look at the, the you know this, Mike, because you run the numbers all the time, but like uh, the expat community in Beijing, that is not, like non-Chinese living in Beijing, the numbers from places like Korea and you know other countries that don't always get, Sort of, the, the, not the patio chaise crowd. Right. The, uh, non-English speaking expats, yeah. essentially, or less English, but coming from countries that have less fluency in English or non-native English. So we're, we're kind of getting close to the end of our time here. And the reason I'm, I'm kind of interested in this particular subject, not just because we've been wanting to get Mike on the podcast for a long time, is that in talking about the expat exodus, uh, the expat exodus is set to grow by one uh, this year. Um, I can't believe it. Yeah. Uh, so for, for those of you who don't know, my wife works for an international organization. She was here in the Beijing office for many years, and uh, she's been called up to the majors, and the headquarters is in Geneva. And so uh, in April of this year, uh, we're going to be moving from Beijing to Geneva. And after, I guess now, 20, oh, 22 years, something like that, in Beijing, which is, you know, I got to say this. 22 years, and you're talking about your friend who, like, up to move to Maine. Yep. You know, I, I, I'm like a lot of people. I don't necessarily, I don't know if I, when I arrived in Beijing, if I thought, you know, I'm going to be here 22 years later. 22 years is a long time to spend in any one place. And so I think about why people leave. I, I agree. There are some reasons why. Like, now, it's not so much that it's like, you know, I must move on. Or, like, we have some friends of ours who are in, like, the journalism field and back, you know, when they all made their escapes in 2015, 2016, they were all like on Twitter, like, I got out just in time. The police were knocking on my door as I boarded my plane. Like, it's not Yet that, I'm it, still tweeting about it every single day yeah, now, six not, years it's, later. It's, it's not, nothing like that, you know. I think what's changed for, for us in our situation, again, everyone's different, is, you know, if you'd asked us 10 years ago, you know, if we we're going to move out of China, it's like, well, you know, it'd have to be, have to be kind of like a godfather offer. You know, it'd have, have to be pretty good, you know. And uh, I think COVID changed that in the sense of it's not like, dear God, we have to get out. It's more like, so there's an offer, huh? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, we're, we'll have that conversation. And right. uh, when this opportunity came up, which is really, really good for, for Yajun's career, uh, yeah, we, we decided to take it. I, I have a feeling that we'll be back on this side of the, the uh, world at some sooner, point sooner than later, yeah. just given where our, our career trajectories both are. But yeah, it's going to be interesting, uh, you know, uh, not being uh, 
not being in China for the first time in, in a long time. Well, congratulations, first of all. That's pretty awesome. And uh, we'll miss you here for sure. But it'll be a new adventure. And I think you're going to be just like every other expatriate. And hopefully you're going to be leaving with a lot of memories and a lot of ties to the city so that, you know, when when another opportunity comes again to come back, you'll be back, right? I will say this, that uh, the I, I've, been, I've been on the various Geneva expat forums. And I will tell you this, I can completely say, American, specifically American expatriates in Geneva, whine just as much as the American expats mm-hmm. whine here in Beijing. They whine about different shit, but <laughs> god damn, it's the exact same thing. I mean, it just it is like part of our, the expat like DNA package that you know we 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 must complain about wherever we are. Yeah. So I I, I take some comfort. You know, in you, that. you know, sometimes being an expatriate, it's easy to whine because you're like. Um, it's it's roughly equivalent to me watching the football playoffs this morning where I don't have a rooting interest in either team so I can feel free to mock both them both and not be emotionally emotionally connected by mocking them both. Oh yeah, they both suck. Oh, look at that idiot. Oh, that coach doesn't know what he's doing. And I don't and I don't feel any pain complaining, whining about it because it's not my my team, right? So I think a lot of expatriates get away with that sort of whining and and maybe it's their common language sometimes. Well, Mike, thanks so much for coming down and talking to us today. Uh, you know, but again, it's it's what you've been doing with the expat community and all of its changes over the years. I, you know, it's it's one thing for those of us who live in the community to kind of bitch about this and bitch about that, but it's also really good to see somebody who's actually actively trying to make Beijing a better place to live for you know, again, not just expats, but you know, the entire community. So thank you for coming on the, the show. Oh, you're welcome. I hope to be on again sometime soon. And David, <laughs> what do you uh, what do you do coming back from uh, back from the city that Tennessee Williams one time said was so aptly named? Tennessee Williams said Beijing was aptly named. No, the city you're in. Oh, the city I'm in. Oh, <laughs> oh my God, Jeremiah. You've taught me so much, but most of it is stuff I can't repeat to anyone else. Your knowledge, your base is, is, is has limited use. Anyway, yes. American uh, literature here. <laughs> anyway, yes, uh, I've come to love Bangkok more and more, especially if I've come to realize that there is a lot more Chinese culture here than I thought. But I'm also getting more and more uh, interested in, in Thai uh, living and politics. They have really delightfully uh, salacious soap opera-like politics that's very fun. They also have a royal family, don't they? They have a royal family, yes. And and it's it's much fun to watch the shenanigans. I'll be going back to Beijing uh, on February 24th, Jeremiah. So we should, our next podcast probably will be all both of us in the same room. Okay, that's awesome. Yeah, because uh, I'll be traveling with a, a new group of students from this semester uh, down in Yunnan over Chinese New Year. And uh, yeah, we'll get together after the new year. We'll compare notes. Great. And uh, looking forward okay. to seeing you uh, back in our misty city. Well, thank you, David. Groovy. And okay. thank you to all thank of you, you who have listened. Uh, we, we will probably be, our next episode will probably be at the end of February. We'll take a short break for the, for the Chinese New Year. And we'll be back at you at the end of February. Keep in touch and cue the drums. Cue the drums.